according to His promise. We are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Join me, if you would, this morning in John chapter 15. John chapter 15. We wrapped up the last of chapter 14 last week. We're ready to move on. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Before we begin, let's take a moment for silent prayer to make sure that we are filled with the Holy Spirit, that we have our distractions and worries and concerns all set aside. We want no part of that. We want to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word, and we thank you this morning that we have the opportunity to come together to receive instruction. Father, to uh, this oasis halfway through the week, Father, that uh, we get to come in from the lost and dying world and the darkness all around us, Father, and be refreshed by the truth of your word as we feast upon the meat of Scripture. So, Father, we pray that you would bless us, pray that you would open the eyes of our understanding, and, and Father, uh, make clear to us um, the blessings of these I Am uh, messages that our Savior delivered. Father, guide us into the truth. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. Still in the midst of episode 23. This episode is going to take a while because it covers chapters 14, 15, 16, 17, 18. Uh, well, no, not 18. 17. Uh, this upper room discourse or upper room and walk to the garden discourse. And uh, called here the last speech to the apostles in intercessory prayer. And uh, it takes us from the point where Judas Iscariot departs the upper room and uh, takes us to, to all the final words that Jesus has for the eleven. And it really is the last things that he says to him before, to them before the cross. Uh, they're very quickly here going to be scattered. He's going to be arrested and face his trials. They're going to be scattered. Uh, Peter and John are going to follow at a distance and they'll be able to eavesdrop on a few things in the high priest's house and in the courtyard. And, and uh, they'll stand either nearby in the case of John or at a distance in the case of Peter. They will stand by and watch the crucifixion and, uh, and so forth. But in these chapters, and as you just look at these pages, they're all red, right? <laughs> 14, 15, 16, 17. You've got red after red after red. You, pick, you flip all these pages and you realize, man, the Lord had a lot to say on this night. And He had a lot to say in a whole realm of doctrine that none of these men were equipped to receive. Uh, the point was they had to receive it on this night so that they could then have it brought to the remembrance 50 days from now and on the day of Pentecost as the Holy Spirit descends. And, and all of a sudden now mystery doctrine is going to start to unfold. And the, all the realities of the church age, realities that you and I take for granted every day, these realities are going to start to make sense to these disciples for the first time ever. Remember, they are Old Testament believers. They have lived their entire life from their salvation looking forward to the coming of the Christ, looking forward to a coming Savior. And, and they've been delighted to, to identify Him. The, the coming Savior has come. And now the coming Savior who has come is also going. All right? And He's going back to heaven. And, and so there's a new reality that they have to adjust to. And that's the whole point of this upper room discourse or the upper room and walk to the garden discourse, the last speech the apostles in intercessory prayer. And so as it is, we've seen six points of study, all from chapter 14. 
and uh, where we were a week ago dealing with point six is that the present message will be understood fully in the coming dispensation of the church. They will not understand it uh, until the church age begins and until they receive the Holy Spirit. That's part of the promise here in verses 25 through 31 is that uh, the Holy Spirit is coming and then he's going to guide them into all things. He's going to teach them all things and bring to their remembrance all that I said to you. All that I said to you, this message here on this night, uh, is going to be brought to their remembrance once the church age begins. Something else that this message does, and we're going to see it today, something else that this message does is it, it prunes them, it cleans them, it prepares them for their abiding in the vine work. And that uh, will come in verse 3 of chapter 15. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. And so there's another benefit to this word, to receiving this message tonight. The word which I have spoken to you. The practical effect of the upper room discourse, the, the John 14 through 17 content, is that it's preparing the disciples to engage in, in church age reality. And that's uh, more of what we're going to see here. The word clean, the word pruned in uh, verse 2 and in verse 3 is the same, uh, the same term. And we'll describe that for you here shortly. All right, which brings us now to point seven as we advance into chapter 15. On the walk to the garden, Jesus continued the important, what I'm calling the important ecclesiastical preview. He's giving the preview of the church. You know, like you go to the movies and they give you previews of upcoming movies. All right, and it just teases you and you say, oh, I want to see that. Oh, I want to see that. Oh, I don't want to see that. Right, You start to see, why did they even waste money making that movie? Well, they're getting this preview on this night, and it's a bit overwhelming. You know, They're still trying to come to grips with the fact that he's going to die tomorrow, right? And even there, they're not really fully accepting that. So, in any event, point seven, on the walk to the garden, Jesus continued the important ecclesiastical preview. And this is the content of chapter 15, 27 verses, and it includes the I am the vine message. The I am the vine message. So let's take a look at it. Again, point seven on the walk to the garden. Jesus continued the important ecclesiastical preview. I am not just I am the vine. I am the true vine. And my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean, or you are already pruned. The, the word for pruning in verse 2 is the word that's translated clean in uh, verse 3. One's a verb and one's a noun. And we'll be dealing with some of this vocabulary here quickly. So he uh, prunes it, or he cleans it. If you're cleaning out your shrubbery, you might, you're probably pruning a lot of things and, and uh, hauling off the, the dead stuff. So you are already clean. You are already pruned. Because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. 
My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples or become my disciples. All right, that gets us down through verse 8. That's as far as I'll read at this moment. We're going to handle verses uh, 1 through 8 as a unit, verses 9 through 17 as a unit, and verses uh, 18 through 27 as a unit, working our way through this particular chapter. Now, understand, this is something revolutionary. This is something brand new. Uh, vine imagery for Israel was, was uh, typically related to God's blessings for the Jewish nation, uh, promises that they would have of, of future prosperity, promises they would have of future uh, millennial blessings and wealth and peace. Each man would sit under his own vine and he would have his own fig tree, for example. That was described as being just millennial perfection, that your own private residence would be your own vine and your own fig and, and everything would be supplied for the Jewish person looking forward to Messiah's coming reign of, uh, coming reign of, of peace. All right. Well, this is something different. This now says you are a branch within the vine. That this, this vine uh, is what the Father himself is working on, and you are a part of it. The Father is the vine dresser. So he tends the vine, and he tends the branches. This is the first, of all the seven I am messages, this is the first one that really puts God the Father in the worker role and uh, demonstrates how the Father works in you, how the Father works in me, because we're connected to the vine. So, let's start to understand some things related to this. First of all, sub-point A, Adam was given a garden to tend, but the true vine and the true worker are Jesus Christ and God the Father. Adam was given a garden to tend. Genesis 2, verse 5 and verse 15. Adam was given a garden to tend, but the true vine and the true worker are Jesus Christ and God the Father. I'm going to spell this out for you here in a moment, but this is, uh, it's important for us to realize how revolutionary this message is about I am the true vine and how transformational the beginning of the church actually is in the outworking of, of humanity in the history of the world. I am the true vine and my Father is the vine dresser. Now, the issues here related to true. We've got a couple of different words for true that the Bible will give us. And it's related to aletheia for truth and uh, aletheinos or aletheis and, and different aspects there. All right. This term here, aletheinos, true vine, this is a, an aspect of truth, but it's not in contrast with false. Okay. And, and that's why I have to, we have to walk our way through this. A lot of times when we think true, we think true as opposed to false. Okay? Quit thinking that. That's, that's a bad contrast for this, for this word. And it's a bad contrast for this, for this um, application. There's another way to think of true. And in particular, this vocabulary is, addresses this. It's true in contrast with um, a foreshadowing, in contrast with a typology, in contrast with a replica, in contrast with something that was an anticipation, see. And so, uh, for example, with all of, the, all of the types of Christ, for example, uh, all of the foreshadowings of Christ were not antichrists. They were not false Christ. Moses was a type of Christ. And so Jesus is the true Christ. 
as the kind of, kind of the 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 expected one with all of the other anticipations. All right, the we talk about the true temple, see, which is the heavenly temple, and Solomon's temple uh, was a replica. Uh, even before that, the the tabernacle, all right, was a replica. It was it was based on the pattern. It was patterned after the uh, the heavenly example. Okay, when God gave the blueprints for the tabernacle, the the blueprints that Moses received were copied after the pattern of the reality in in heaven. All right, so you see how this works. So the true temple in heaven is the true temple. And that's, that's not to say that Solomon's was a false temple, right? Or that the tabernacle was a false temple, okay? It's to say, I like our little codes and hand signals. That's great. People listening to MP3 have no clue. All right. Um, it's not to say that Solomon's temple was a false temple, but it was a, it was a foreshadowing. It was a replica. It was, it was an anticipation, and that's what we have here. I am the true vine. Now, that's not to say that previous vines were phonies or false, all right? But it does mean that we do want to look back to, to, to things prior to this and say, what was the foreshadowing of this? What was the anticipation of this? What was the, the previous understanding of vines and the previous understanding of, of uh, tending of a garden or tending of a... Of a, uh, of a um, of the wine, as it were. What was the foreshadowing? And we can find foreshadowing in Israel with respect to uh, typically um, God's rebuke for Israel and all the blessings that he had prepared for them and how they, they, uh, they rejected it and how they, they rejected his provision. For example, he'll talk about how he planted a vineyard and he put a wall around it and he weeded it out and he protected it. And then he will... After demonstrating how faithful he is on their behalf, he then says, and you guys just, you know, went after other gods and rebelled and did your own thing and, and so forth. Um, so there, there are Old Testament foreshadowings of this. I am the vine message. But the very first one goes back to Adam and Eve. The very first is the placement. So join me in Genesis chapter two. The very first uh, thing that happens here. God creates man. And, uh, and what does he do? He doesn't say, uh, you know, just sit around doing nothing and, and, uh, and uh, enjoy the universe. He puts him to work. He puts him to work. And this is before the fall. This is before sin. This is before thorns, before weeds, before, before work becomes toil. Work is work. And man was designed to work. And that's for his blessing, but it's also for God's good pleasure. That's for a lot of reasons. Work is not a curse. Work was cursed. Does that make sense? All right. And so here in Genesis 2, we notice this is the account of the heavens and the earth, verse 4, when they were created in the day that the Lord God made earth and heaven. Now no shrub of the field was yet in the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted, for the Lord God had not yet sent rain on the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. God had to actually take into account prior to his decision as far as which plants grow where and how, God had to recognize that in order for certain plants to, uh, to be established, that it required a cultivator. 
And so part of God's design that he delayed the rising of certain cultivated uh, plants in order for the cultivator to cultivate. But a mist used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. And the Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden and there he placed the man whom he had formed. All right, so we have all creation, the whole planet, but the whole planet was not God's garden. All right, the whole planet was not uh, a, a place of cultivation. We have this certain, the boundaries established here for the garden. And that's where man gets placed. He has a residence. He has a place where he's expected to not live, work. All right, he can live wherever he wants to live, but he has to work here. And we recommend that you live fairly close to your work, otherwise your commute is just terrible. Now, all right, Adam didn't have a commute. He didn't have traffic and, and the other things there. In any event, he planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he formed. Out of the ground, the Lord caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food and the tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now we start talking about boundaries. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. I think it's important as we look through this early chapter here, Genesis 2, I think it's important that we realize that there is a lot more going on here than we understand. This is not just two human beings that are, you know, living on the planet and expected to, you know, just pluck fruit off of trees and, and feed themselves their whole lives. Okay? Now, obviously they could. You know, all of the trees in the world would sustain them. Uh, a population of two and, and not require any farming and not require any cultivation and, and work. But man was designed to work. And, and, and Adam and Eve are going to get a lot more pr productivity out of, you know, the, the, the land that they, that they cultivate than uh, can come just in the wild. But notice some other things that are happening here. We're finding rivers, we're finding boundaries, we're finding water rights, we're finding mineral rights. We're finding the very things, the natural resources are the foundation for uh, human government. It's the foundation for uh, territory and boundaries and, and, uh, and all of the, uh, the things that nations will fight over. So a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden and from there it divided and became four Rivers. Now, it's, it's interesting because uh, when it says that he planted the garden, it was toward the east in Eden, um, and the water flowed out of Eden to water the garden. The garden wasn't actually inside of Eden, but it was towards Eden. A lot of people debate that back and forth. All right. And then uh, the name of the first is Pishon and describes this. It flows around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold. Well, who cares? What's he going to spend money on? Okay. Well, remember, this is more than just Adam and Eve. This is foundational for their children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. They're, they're going to live to see the ninth generation before they finally die. All right. And, you know, had they not fallen in sin, then they would never have died. But the provision of gold here is designed for the economy, designed to be an item of value uh, as, a, as a medium of trade. So there's gold there. The gold of that land is good. The bdellium and the onyx stone are there. So we have mineral rights. We have precious metals and we have mineral rights. We have water rights. All of these are foundational for the operation of nations. The name of the second river is Gihon. It flows around the whole land of Cush. 
And so we find that there are waters that are named and there are lands that are named. Why do you give a name to the land? What's the point in naming a land? Well, what you give name to, you have sovereignty over. Land is something nameable. You give a name to it, you're the sovereign. Land is designed to be a possession. All right. The name of the third river is Tigris. It flows east of Assyria, and the fourth river is Euphrates. And, of course, geography all changed after the flood, so we don't know specifically whether you know, this Tigris and Euphrates ought to be considered the same as the Tigris and Euphrates that we know today, and, uh, and so forth. Now, the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. All right, two work assignments that he's given, two commands to cultivate it, and to keep it. The keeping we talk about a lot is shamer. It means to guard, to protect. And uh, you realize that the, the, the serpent actually being there and tempting Eve represents the, the fact that Abraham and Ar- or that Adam had already failed in some protection capacity. And, uh, but then in the cultivation capacity, to work it. The word there is to work. Avad in Hebrew, to work it. He was put in the Garden of Eden to work it. To work it. This is what we're designed to do. All right? And this, this is fundamental to the nature of humanity. And it's, it, it's separates us from the animals. Okay? Although, you know, <laughs> there's a bunch of animal rights folks. They would love to tell you that, you know, animals, animals can use tools, you know, because, uh, you know, chimps learn how to break open coconuts with a stick. Right. And so they they say, see, that's 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 tool usage. Animals can use tools. All right. This is how desperate they are to try to put us on the level of animals and put animals on the level of us and put all of creation on a playing field that says, you know, we're all just, you know, part of this uh, tree of life, circle of life, blah, blah, blah. Okay. What they want to deny is, of course, that we are the masters of this creation because God has designed humanity to be the workers of the earth. And the idea of cultivation, that, that you know, an acre is far more productive if you actually work it, okay, as opposed to a wild acre, something that just runs you know, wild. And uh, you know, how, many, uh, uh, how many bushels per acre do you get? And in, in, in a particular crop. And why are we striving to find more uh, and better ways to irrigate, to fertilize, to uh, better methods for, for reaping a greater crop? See, it's a tremendous advances that we have in modern times. It's, it's stunning what we can do, what our population can do today. We can, we can feed the earth with, with just, you know, a tiny percentage of people working as farmers. You ever consider that? I mean... <laughs> When our country was founded, it took 90% of the population just to feed everybody. 90% of the population were farmers. We're we're working on food production. That only left 10% of the people free to pursue other things like, you know, art and literature and music and science and, I mean, any number of things. Well, well, guess what? The, The fewer and fewer farmers we need, what does that do? That frees up more and more people to do other things. And I, I view that as a tremendous advantage because then you get more people that can go into science, more people can go into medicine, more people can go into, into you know, all of the useless things that, that people go into. Well, great for them. They want to study underwater basket weaving, 
Awesome. We have a fat, prosperous land that affords them the, the luxury of being able to do that. See? So, uh, because we have found ways to harness creation. You know, well, and this is where the, 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 the tree huggers and the, and the, the Gaia worshippers, um, they hate this. They want everything back in a pristine, you know, they want it just the way that it, you know, big bang exploded, evolved and whatever. The idea that you're going to put a dam on a river. <laughs> See, they hate that. I mean, what about the ecosystem? What about the salamanders and bugs and worms? And, and you know, the idea that we're going to we're going to alter the course of the, the, the course of the water. We're going to channel it. We're going to we're going to irrigate. No, it should run its natural course. See, they'll tell you that. I'll tell you that. So, really, a lot of what we deal with today is is two fundamentally different worldviews. There's one worldview. The biblical worldview says that we are commanded to cultivate the earth. We are commanded to subdue it. To subdue it. And even before sin entered in the world, we were commanded to subdue it. See, to tame rivers, to, to reclaim land, right? You drain a swamp. You cultivate it. You don't preserve the natural swamp as a wetland and appreciate its rich biodiversity. It's a swamp. Okay? It breeds mosquitoes. It's, it, it, it's, a, it's a lair for snakes and serpents and alligators, all kinds of nasty, creepy, crawly things. Drain that swamp. Cultivate it. Bring it into a productivity, a human productivity. And I think that's, again, what they hate. It's, it's remarkable how, how much they view humans as being the, the worst parasites this, uh, this living planet has, in their view. <coughs> All right. So there's more here. Um, to cultivate it and to keep it. To work it and to guard it. What does he have to guard it against? Well, we find out very quickly in the next chapter. This uh, serpent comes in and leads his wife and him into sin. Now the Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. So in addition to his positive commands, there is a prohibition, one tree that he's banned from eating from. And then he gives him a helper. He gives him a helper. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. And so uh, is this because uh, he needs help in the garden? He needs a, 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 somebody to pull weeds. They didn't have weeds and thorns yet. Okay, this is still sinless. This is still perfect. But two can do a whole lot more than one. And two can also reproduce. Or Adam's not going to do that by himself. All right. Because a billion can do more than two. Okay. What was the population of the earth when, when uh, Noah survived the flood? Do we have any idea? No, eight survived. What was the global population? How many died? We don't really know. But I've seen some estimates that it was more than we have on earth today. It was billions, perhaps, in those generations. With, with perfect health, perfect environment. I mean, ladies, I mean, we love you and everything, but you got, what, 20 years of childbearing? 30 years of childbearing? What do you have? You know, how many babies would you have with 800 years of childbearing? You're laughing, all right? And and the the unbelievable health and fitness to uh, to uh, to bear those children and you know realizing that the disease and sin and, and uh, the environmental effects are not what they are today. How many children did 
did they have? We don't know. Okay? <laughs> Interesting stuff to think about. Now, um, out of the ground, the Lord formed every beast of the field, every bird of the sky, brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Now, this is just so awesome. I am going to get to the I am message today. <laughs> all right. But in any event, if we just spend the day in Genesis, that's all right. Um, why did God not name the animals? I mean, he gave names to the rivers. Okay. Although technically, you know, the text doesn't tell us who gives the name. It just says what the names are. Um, so the name of the first is. It flows over the whole land of. It doesn't say that God gave them those names. It doesn't say that Adam gave them those names. It may just be that those are the names that they're known by now or those are the names that they were known by later. It doesn't really say who gave those names. But clearly now, the animals, God told Adam, name this animal. And so Adam says, all right, this is a, this is a cow. This is a giraffe. This is a moose. Whatever. And then God goes, okay, I'm good with that. Right? Isn't that awesome? You know, why did God do this? Was God not capable of giving them these names? Of course He was. But instead of Him doing it, He chooses to allow, chooses to allow Adam to do it. Why? Adam has to do it. This is part of His sovereignty, part of His assignment, part of His work. Delegated responsibility. You delegate and you tell your son to take the trash out. It's not because you can't do it. It's because you've delegated him to do it. And he's going to do it in faithfulness. He's going to develop character. He's going to learn these principles of work. And that's his assignment. Not because you can't. It's because you don't want to. <laughs> because he can and he needs to. Now, and so God, because he sovereignly said, all right, whatever you want. And so the man gave names to all the cattle. God said, all right. He validated the choices Adam made. Every beast of the field. But for Adam, notice now, there was not found a helper suitable for him. Not only was Adam naming these animals, you know, when you name something, you've got sovereignty over it. But he also uh, realized that they were um, created biologically male and female. And he figured out very quickly <laughs> that he was missing something. <laughs> right? He's looking at these male and female animals and he's looking at himself and he, he identifies his own male nature. And he says, I'm missing a corresponding mate. And so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and he slept. He took one of his ribs, closed up the flesh of that place. The Lord God fashioned a woman, the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. Now the man said, and this is remarkable. He does not say... Uh, you know, I have a mate now. I can start making babies. He does start to say, this is my helper. This is, she came out of man. And what does he do? He gives her a name. This is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. He gives her a name. So who has sovereignty? See, you give names to your children. You're the one who names them. You are the sovereign over them in raising them, training them, building them up, preparing them for their generation. When they will leave father and mother cleave to one another, they will then enter into that generational sovereignty and they'll start naming their babies. All right. Okay, so that's, that's all foundational. But 
What is this picture now? We realize there's a picture. There is Adam. And he is commanded to work. He's commanded to cultivate. And this is a picture. Okay, now later on they'll have other things added. They'll be able to kill animals and eat meat, thankfully. Uh, humanity wasn't designed to be, you know, lifelong vegetarians. But we have a pattern that's established here. Okay? Now we start to find out in the church age that that pattern is simply a foreshadowing of a much greater reality. That there's additional work to be done and the Father Himself is the worker. The Father Himself is the vine dresser. We realize as we tend vines, as we farm, as we plant, as we garden, as we do whatever, that we are being pictures of God the Father. Pictures of God the Father and God the Son. Okay? You ever think about that? This is the role for humanity. This is man made in the image of God. This is our role to image God. So, the true vine and the true worker are Jesus Christ and God the Father. Specifics now. I want to give you seven things related to I am the vine. Point one. This is the seventh and final I am message. This is the seventh and final I am message in the Gospel of John. Can you name them all? That's not fair. I should have given you a tip last week. Um, the seventh and final I am message. We'll look at them. We'll spend today looking at them. John 6, John 8, John 10, John 11, John 14, John 15. Those are the chapters where you're going to find them. We even have a, uh, I remember when we did Scripture Memory, there's a little I Am booklet for the kids. One of the, one of the youngest of ages, I think five-year-olds, six-year-olds, um, have an I Am Scripture Memory book. And it's these very passages where they learn these verses. Well, what's interesting, and, and we'll, we'll go back and we'll look at these. I am the bread, I am the light, I am the door, I am the good shepherd. Okay? As we're going to go back and look at all of these, none of them have what this one has. Because this one also has, my father is. This one not only has an I am, but it has and my father is. It also has you are. It has a you are. Plural, y'all. Y'all are. Okay? All y'all. I am, my Father is, I am, you are. That makes this different from the other six that preceded it. The seventh one is the greatest, and the seventh one is unique. It is the only I am message to contain, my Father is, and y'all are. So think about that as we work our way through these other ones. And we see it here. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. That's awesome. Because it's all about what the Father's doing. The rest, of the, the rest of the context is all about what the Father's doing. But as you look at it here too, notice, let me get back to John 15, the I am is, is, is made twice. Twice he, he claims to be a vine. Claims to be the vine in verse 1, claims to be the vine in verse 5. And in verse 1 is where he adds, my Father is. And in verse 5, the second time he says, I am the vine, is when he t- tells you what you are. You see that there? So in verse 1, I am, and my Father is. In verse 5, I am, and you are. And you are. That's what That's unique. And it's also unbelievable. It is, it is a depth of... of uh, of truth that, that just boggles my mind. 
When you consider, as we've seen in every single one of these I am messages, I am is the, is the declaration of deity. I am is the holy existence of God. It's the basis for even the personal name Yahweh is based on the I am reality of God. God is the only I am. He is the only self-existent being in all anything, all creation and outside of creation. Okay? Everything else that is became. God is the only thing that is without becoming what He is. And, and yet we have now an am statement. And we became that. But it is, it is still it's a remarkable reality of, of how it's being presented here in this, in this connection. So I am, my Father is, and you are. You are. Okay? So, you remember what these are all about? John 6. John 6.35, I am the bread. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. And this is where he'd already fed the 5,000. He multiplied the loaves. They want him to do it again. Feed us again. Feed us again. Feed us again. Jesus says, you're missing the point. (laughs) God didn't send me here to fill your bellies and just to be your own personal bread maker. The miracle should alert you to the fact that I'm from heaven and I've got a heavenly message and you better listen to what I have to say. They don't want any part of the message. They, they just want to have their bellies filled. And uh, they said, you know, Moses gave manna. Can, can you keep giving us bread every day? It says, Jesus says here, you're missing the point. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. All right. Now, anything on this? Is there any is there any statement here of, of the father is, you know, I am the bread. My father is the baker. <laughs> OK, I am the bread. My father is the baker. You are the. The garlic on the bread. I mean, no. This I am message all about Christ. It, it keeps the emphasis on him and who he is, what he is. Uh, it orients us to how we should adjust ourselves to who he is. In other words, believing, coming. Okay. And so we, we understand that there's a metaphor at work here. And the metaphor is, uh, with respect to bread, is eat. With respect to uh, water, it's drink. But both eating and drinking are simply metaphors, you know, representative of the act of faith, the act of believing. He who believes. Believing equals coming. And so we see it here. He who uh, comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. Coming equals believing. It's only by faith that you come to Christ. All right, so the first I am message highlights the fact that to get saved, you come to Christ. You believe in Christ. You eat of that bread of heaven. You become a partaker as you believe. John 8, I am the light. I am the light. We have a new... Uh, now that we are saved, now that we have eaten, we have a new uh, way to, to look at the world, and it's light, not darkness. Jesus again spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but have the light of life. Now, is this about, is this about uh, getting saved? Is this the same message as we had in bread? That's a different message. 
In bread, the issue is coming to Christ in faith and, and getting saved. With light, the issue is, okay, now I'm saved. I've got to follow Christ. I've got to walk in the light. I used to walk in darkness. Now I can walk in light. Now, again, I look at this and I say, hmm, is there a my father is? I am the light of the world and my father is the light switch. No, <laughs> I am the I am the light of the world and my father is the no. And you are the you know, you are the light bulb. No, this is all, again all about Christ, all about Christ. So the first I am is entirely about Jesus and our relationship by faith to him. Uh, John eight, all about Jesus again and how we follow him. We walk in his light. No mention of the father, no mention of us. John 10, I am the door. I am the door. And my father is. (laughs) Okay. So again, we have a progression. Is this all about getting saved? Is this the same as bread? No, it has nothing to do with getting saved. Particularly because this door, you go in and out. And if this is an in and out kind of a door, then you know it's got nothing to do with salvation, right? Salvation is a one-way door. You're in and you're, you're always in. You never get out. So what is this? I get saved by eating the bread of life. I'm following Christ by walking in the light. And now I understand a couple of things here in this chapter with the door and the good shepherd. John 10 has two I am statements. I am the door in verses 7 and 9 and I'm the good shepherd in verses 11 and 14. And we realize that when I'm walking in the light, I'm in a, uh, I'm in a fallen world. I'm in a hostile environment, and I'm not suited to this environment. I'm a sheep, okay? And so uh, there is shepherding in the Christian way of life, all right? There is a, a pen that I can sleep in, protected at night, um, but there is also a, uh, in the morning, I have to leave that pen. I have to be brought out into pasture land. I have to feed. I have to drink. I have to follow my shepherd, and so this is the in and out aspect. I, I come in to, uh, to sleep at night, but I have to go out uh, to find pasture. And so this door is, uh, is an important message. And then likewise, when I'm out there, what do I need? I need a shepherd. And so you have, I am the door and I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd uh, watches after me. He kills wolves. He protects me. He takes me. Well, I don't know where I'm going. I'm just a dumb sheep. Okay. You know, I... The door opens and the shepherd leads me out. The shepherd takes me to the to the right pasture and he takes me to the right water place. And he, he's killing the, the predators and he's bringing me back because I wouldn't know how to find my way back. I'm just a dumb sheep. I don't know anything. And so uh, we see this here. Now, again, the metaphor is strictly about Christ. It doesn't say I am the door and the father is the door frame. Or I am the door and you are the knob. Okay. It's just, I am the door. And we relate to Christ for who he is and, 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 uh, and what he's doing. Same thing with the good shepherd. Doesn't say, I am the good shepherd and my father is the... Doesn't say any of that. It's just all about, I am the good shepherd. And how do we relate to him? And what's our orientation here in the, in the Christian way of life? All centered on Christ. So these are all Christological through these, all these I am's. Okay? So I'm saved. I'm walking in the light um, and I'm engaged in the angelic conflict, protected by my shepherd and, and uh, going in and out of the pen and, and uh, being fed. John 11:25, our next I am message. 
John eleven twenty five. You know, you could take this whole I'm giving this whole thing to you in twenty minutes, and you could take it and create seven individual sermons and seven messages and do a little series of messages on your own. A lot of doctrine in this. All right, John eleven. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And so, um, is that is this? are any of these repeats? Have you noticed? None of them are repeats. They actually form a progression of additional information and a, a progression of more information. So, I know, I'm, I know that I'm saved. I know that I can walk in the light. I know that... that um, I'm in and out of the, of the pan. I know that I'm shepherded. Okay? And now what am I learning? I'm learning that this life is not all there is. That, that uh, He's going to faithfully see me from this life into the next. Alright? And so uh, if, even if I die, I'm going to live again. And the fact is that I'm never going to die. Not spiritually. Okay? I am the resurrection of the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. So if I do reach the point of physical death... I'm going to live again. I'm going to have. I'm going to take part in the resurrection. But also, that's what. That's where I am. The resurrection. Okay. This is a two-parter. It's the first of our two-parters. Okay. We have a two-parter. It's going to be followed by a three-parter. This two-parter. I am the resurrection and the life. Okay. So the promise of resurrection means that even if I die, I will live again. But the life. I am the life. Means what? Means that I'm spiritually now. I'm never going to die. I'm never going to die. He who lives, everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. So even when my body dies, I'm still spiritually alive. That is never lost. That spiritual life to your human spirit is eternal. It is never lost. So there's the I am. Now, there's no I am and the Father is in this. There's no I am and you are. It's all about Christ still. It's just I am. I am. In our sixth I am message, we start to bring that attention to the Father. John fourteen six. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Now, now we start to see the Father and something that's going to be truly expanded. The Father gets His own He is message in, in uh, John 15. But what are we dealing with here? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through Me. The uh, immature view on this, of course, is, well, this is all salvation again. This is all just back to bread of heaven and getting saved. That's a very immature view of this. It's true. No one comes to the Father. No one gets saved except by Christ. And no one comes to the Father in terms of salvation except through Christ. But there's so much more that's being that's in view here. Because recognize what this is. This is a passage that's talking about in my Father's house are many dwelling places. This is a passage that talks about I go to prepare a place for you. The thrust on this passage is not passing from death into life or getting saved, but the idea that we have an eternal destiny of fellowship with God the Father. And how is it that we even now today can be engaged in that love relationship with God the Father? And we see that what's going to follow here is, is that if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. The fact that this church age you and I live in is an age where we have fellowship with 
Not only Jesus, but God the Father. We are sons commanded to fellowship with God the Father. We are the Father's fellow workers. So in this sixth I am message, it's still all about Christ in the sense of the I am. We don't have a statement here that says that my Father is, but He does say I am, and I am the only way you're coming to the Father. The only way you're coming to the Father. Coming in fellowship, coming in worship, coming in love, coming in, in all of these things. Abiding. We see this here about how um, uh, going to the Father and the Father loves you and the Father will come in and dwell in you and all these, these things here that we see. It's all about the Father starting in this chapter. It gets even more so in chapter 15. So the idea that no one comes to the Father but through me means not just that I'm saved, I'm going to go to heaven when I die. But right now, today, the Father's the one I pray to. The Father's the one I work with. The Father's the one I fellowship with. Our fellowship with the Father and with His Son. This should be the reality of our Christian walk today. All right, which then finally gets us to our seventh I Am passage. I Am. And this one that's interesting, because in the first six... The I am is followed up with everything that Jesus is doing. Uh, but this one really, the vine, what does the vine do? In this chapter, the vine pretty much does nothing. It's just there in the, in the, in the story, in the, in the metaphor. The, the vine is just there. The Father's the one that's doing all the work. The vine's not the one lifting up. The vine's not the one removing. The vine's not the one cleaning. The vine's not the one throwing out old stuff. It's the workers, the vine dresser that's doing all that. It's what the Father's doing here in this chapter. So I am the true vine. My Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He, the Father, the vine dresser, takes away or lifts up. We'll study this. He cleans it or prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. He's going to prune the branch. This is what the Father does. All right. So the sixth, uh, the seventh and final I am message is the first and only to, to also contain my Father is and y'all are. Y'all are. You are. You all, plural here, the branches. The one who abides in me and I in him. He bears much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. All right. So this is about... Us as branches and the Father as the vine dresser. And let's take a look at it next. Point two. Sub point two. Branches either bear fruit or not. Branches either bear fruit or not. Those are the two options. Those are the only two considerations that determine what it is that the vine dresser does. These two alternatives spark two alternate actions taken by God the Father. God the Father is either going to do one or He's going to do the other. And is it, is it God's sovereignty that determines what God does? Or is it your volition that determines what God does? Calvinists aren't going to like this. Alright? But the work God does, either of taking away or pruning, lifting up or cleaning, it's Iro and cut Iro. I'll show you the vocabulary here in a moment. The work that he does is contingent upon the productivity of the branch. You notice that? 
He doesn't take away a fruit-bearing branch. He takes away the non-fruit-bearing branch. And he doesn't prune the non-fruit-bearing branch. He prunes the fruit-bearing branch. And so his actions are contingent upon the branch. What's the branch doing? What kind of branch is it? What's it doing? And depending on what kind of branch it is and what the branch is doing, the vine dresser takes one of two different courses of action. Now, what are these actions? Iro and kathairo. Iro. See, in the Greek, it's, it's, it's pretty neat the way that you have a word play here. Iro. And then you stick kata in front of it. And you have kathairo. Iro and kathairo. Iro, number 142. To lift up, to take up or to carry away and to remove. And this is where we'll have to slow down a little bit and and take some, um, uh, you know, examine some other passages where this word is used and ask ourselves, you know, with all the different ways you can take this verb, what's the best way to take this verb? And what's the best way to take this verb in contrast with the next verb we're going to be looking at? Because clearly they're linked and clearly they're related. And uh, the activity is, you know, on the one hand and on the other hand. And so I think we should study them together so that we can translate them both appropriately if uh, if one of them is a removal and the other one's uh, uh, not a removal but a pruning then that's that's a good way um you know agriculturally to you know understand this in the garden imagery and that's what we have we have a garden imagery here vine and, and vine dresser um the idea of uh cleaning doesn't seem to make as much sense uh because um you know, the idea of clean versus dirty doesn't seem to be the right contrast here with respect to uh, non-fruit-bearing branches. They have to be removed. And then pruning doesn't remove the branch, but it does remove the dead stuff off the branch. It removes the, the dead, uh, non-productive uh, elements from it, but it still leaves the branch there. So there's the, there's the distinction. Am I taking it away or am I leaving it there? And uh, I think that's the, the better contrast. All right, Iro, A-I-R-O, number 142. Has 101 New Testament uses. Kathairo only has the one. <laughs> this is it. This is the one only place in the New Testament where Kathairo occurs. But it is related to Katharos, which is a fairly common adjective. 26 uses of Katharos, which means clean or pure. Clean or pure. So, uh, you know, if a gardener comes along and he prunes through a whole uh, wall of bramble and brush and whatever what's he doing he's cleaning it out and uh, he's pruning it he's cleaning it he's removing the dead stuff and when he walks away from it what's left it looks pretty clean doesn't it It looks cleaned out it looks it looks uh pure all right let me switch to my labronics and bring this up for you i was going to show you some of these things because uh i don't know people seem to like it and i like it i'm visual and i've noticed i'm not the only visual person here John 15 and once I show you how easy this is you're going to say I don't even need a pastor I'll just get the software and do all this this is easy okay so verse 2 I'll put it over on this side and we'll open up a Click on verse 2 here, and I'm just going to do 
from the reference John 15.2, I'm going to do a exegetical guide. All right. And you can do this either from a Greek text or an English text if it has the Greek underneath it. Um, this is kind of fun. The uh, grammars, by the way, I, I recommend Dan, anyone that's really studying uh, a verse, it may not make much sense to you, but by the time you're a third-year Greek student, you ought to be camping on that grammar section. You ought to be going through each of these, you know, Blaster, Brunner, and Funk, and Moulton, Howard, Turner, and Robertson, going through this, and it may not click with you right away, but you at least ought to expose yourself to the different grammatical uh, issues that every verse presents and all the different uh, things that you wouldn't really pick up on otherwise, because that's... There's a lot of deep stuff in there. All right. Anyway, John 15:2. Then this thing takes you down here through you word for word. Takes you through uh, the Greek text and shows you where the, where the uh, English word is. So you have pawn, you have every that are highlighted there. And then it takes you word by word. So every branch not bear fruit, he takes away. Here we go. I ray, I ray, he takes away. Okay. So even if you don't know Greek, you can at least read through this and go word for word. Okay, he takes away, iro, to, to lift, to take up. If you don't know how to pronounce it, you click the little microphone and it speaks to you. All right. And then uh, you say, well, how come it says ire? What's the difference between ire and iro? Well, ire is your verb, present, active, indicative, third person, singular. And so you just, you have it's all parsed for you. It's broken down for you into the different parts of speech. There, though, you've got to be careful because there can be disputes and disagreements. Uh, sometimes, you know, uh, an indicative could be also an imperative, and it's a judgment call on the part of uh, translators. And so there it is. Um, let's focus on this one first, and then we'll go to cut Iro. Just click on that, and it'll open up your Iro window for you. All right? opens up your Iro window for you. shows you that it's used 101 times in the New Testament. Uh, gives you all your, your lexicons there, your different dictionaries where you can look it up. And they're ordered from your favorite ones at the top. Pretty handy. Gives you your little translator wheel. Now, this is, this is where it jumps out at you. This is where if you're visual, um, you can learn a lot just by looking at that wheel right there and go, wow, that's pretty cool. Iro, okay, to lift up, to take up. And each of the colors around that wheel are proportional, okay? So the bigger the, the segment of that wheel, that means the more times that it's translated that way. So Iro uh, is translated by the New American Standard Bible, translated to pick or to pick up, and all those uses there. 20 of the 101 times is, is where it's translated like that, to pick up, okay? To pick or pick up. Um, to take away 12 times, taken away 11 times. Uh, to take eight times. You can just work your way all around the circle like that, one by one. Or if you uh, just click in the middle there, it'll give you all 101 of them working your way down the circle here. Okay. Now, this, by the way, saves you a ton of page flipping. <laughs> right? It saves you. You don't have to be flipping all those pages to be looking at all these verses. You can just read down the column there and say, all right, Matthew 9, 6, uh, you know, get up, pick up your bed and go home. Oh, yeah, I remember that story. Yeah. Pick up your bed and go home. Okay, I get that. That's Iro. That's the verb Iro. The, the, the man, the paralytic was laying there and no one could lift him into the pool. And Jesus healed him and said, all right, now pick up your pallet and go home. Pick it up. Pick it up. Okay, I get that. Is that how we have it here? Every branch that does not bear fruit, the Father picks it up? 
It actually can be. Uh, it, if you, the practice with vines in particular, grapevines and so forth, is that you could pick them up and then suspend them, hang them from, from poles and, and, and wires and so forth, and you pick them up out of the dirt where they can get better sunlight, better air, different aspects there. And so it's, it's a legitimate way to translate it. You pick it up. Pick it up. Uh, Matthew 14:20. They all ate and were satisfied, and they picked up what was left over of the broken pieces, twelve full baskets. Remember that story? He fed the five thousand. They had bread left over, and so they picked up what was left over, the broken pieces, twelve full baskets. Um, after he fed the five thousand, he fed four thousand. The next chapter, again, they picked up what was left over, the broken pieces. Uh, so those are the uses in Matthew and Mark, and you just work your way through the New Testament this way. Um, There's any more that jump out at me here? <laughs> Eutychus sitting on the windowsill, sinking into a deep sleep, as Acts 20 and verse 9. As Paul kept on talking, he was overcome by sleep and fell down from the third floor and was picked up dead. You know, it's pretty rough. That's why we don't let anybody sit in the windows around here because I can get pretty boring on occasion. And you say, yeah, like this, this whole Iro color wheel thing. Come on, move on. Well, this is, this is how you can very quickly just start working your way through all the verses where these things are. Now, those are the places where Iroh is listed as pick up, and it makes sense in those contexts to, to lift up. But here's the 12 verses where the New American Standard Bible translates it to take away. Okay? And by the way, if you want to study in a different Bible, if you want to use the Holman, you want to use the New King James or whatever, uh, you can, the, the software will allow you to use the Bible of your choice just so long as there is a Greek text underlying uh, that particular translation. There's five or six different English Bibles where that's possible now. So take away. Whoever has to him more shall be given. He will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he does have, shall be taken away from him. Taken away from him. And this is kind of natural. Anything that you lift up, you might be lifting up for the purpose of taking it somewhere. Okay, uh, Lifting up and, and removing so it's, it's a secondary application from, from lifting up. Um, the kingdom of God is going to be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. So there's the idea that not only is it lifted up, but it's actually taken away. And I think that's a good passage to correlate with the one that we're looking at in John 15 because it's talking about fruit production. Okay, You guys are non-fruit produ- producing. Uh, a coming generation will be fruit producing. They're the ones that are going to get the kingdom. You're going to lose the kingdom. The kingdom of God is taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. Let's see if there's any more of these. The Jews, because it was the day of preparation, John 19.31, so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, they asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. They're going to be lifted up off the cross, right? They're going to be lifted up. And see, this is the the interesting thing because Jesus uses the language of lifted up to talk about being put on the cross. You know, unless I'm lifted up, okay, I will gather all men into myself. So he's lifted up when he's put on the cross, uh, but the same idiom is used to take him off the cross. That they would be taken away. They would be lifted up. They would be Iro taken away. Mary, uh, the next morning, sees that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. She goes and tells Peter, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb. So, yeah, there's plenty of places where take away is a good translation. Take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. 
the, uh, the bird comes and takes away the word which had been sown in them. Whoever takes away your coat, give him your other coat. You don't withhold your uh, shirt from him also. So take away is it's a perfectly wonderful translation. So what's the best one here? Is it lift up or take away? What's the best translation here? All right. Then some other uses. So that's Iro. When we get to cut Iro, what are we looking at? <laughs> a very simple. <laughs> now it gets easy. It's only used once. <laughs> so there's your there's your there's your circle. Okay, it's all one color because it's only one time and it's translated prune. Okay, he prunes it. But even in prunes it, there's a footnote. You know, in the, in, it'll say literally cleans used to describe pruning. Your New American Standard Bible will give you a little footnote down in the margin somewhere. Okay. So you can have some very long word studies. You can have some very short word studies. Is it really 11.05? I've gone long with this. Hand. Okay, I'm sorry. Wow. The clock which cannot lie. There's the two places where it's used in the Septuagint. All right, well, we'll come back to this next hour. My apologies. I didn't realize it was getting so late. Father, thank you for your truth. And we've got to just to barely scratch the surface on this here, Father. Um, you're the vine dresser. We want to understand that... Uh, this is not just uh, an academic study about some abstract thing that you did a long time ago, Father. Like you came up with a plan of God before the foundation of the world and you presided over the Eternal Life Conference or you sent your son. Father, those, those are all things that you did way back when. But Father, you are, are the vine dresser. And this speaks to what you do now, what you presently do, what you are. And what we are. And Father, this is a passage very real to us because you're in this passage, we're in this passage. And, uh, and you're working in us. And uh, the work that you do in us um, is very much involved with the work that we're doing in your Son. So Father, uh, I do pray in the weeks ahead as we continue to study this passage that you would open the eyes of our understanding, cause us to recognize our role as branches Cause us to recognize our obligation as branches in the vine to be inseparably united, abiding in the vine, to, uh, to be uh, everything that a branch is to a vine, we are to be to Christ so that, Father, You can, you can prune us appropriately and not, uh, not remove us, Father, not, not to deal with us as fruitless vines. So, Father... Uh, We've got a good start on it. Look forward to what you have for us coming up. We thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.